Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you're new with us today, my name is David Cassidy, and I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church, and it's a great joy to open God's Word with you today. And again, we are in a series as we're learning together what the Bible teaches about gathered worship, what God's people do together on a regular basis as we gather together in God's presence to magnify his name, hear his word, pray together, seek his face. What's the meaning of that? What's the meaning of what we're doing this morning? And we've learned that in the course of this series, that worship, long before it's an offering we bring to God, it is a gift, a grace he bestows on us. God sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, liberate them, redeem, God's redeeming his people so that they may worship me. These were people who'd been slaves and he turned them into kings and priests and prophets and brought them into his presence. And he said to them as they came out and came to his presence at Mount Sinai, you are a royal priesthood, a people for my own possession." And those very words from Exodus chapter 19 are applied to every person who believes in Jesus by the apostle Peter in chapter two of his letter. He says, you too are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a people for God's own possession. And so we learned that worship is not only a grace we've been given, but a vocation to which every single believer is called. Every single one of us are priests. There's not a caste system in the church of priests up here and people out there. We have a great high priest over the house of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll read about that a little bit this morning in Hebrews chapter 10 when we get to that text. But we need to remember that every single believer is a priest before the Lord and called into his presence, every single one of us. And that means, as we learned last week, that worship is a high priority for us. This is not an optional extra on a menu of spiritual benefits. It's something that we're all called together to do. We saw this in the book of Revelation, where John heard a voice and said, the voice said to him, come up here. And he suddenly was before the throne of God, and he was with all of the believers who'd gone before him. He's with the angels and archangels, and this great anthem of heaven resounds through all creation because at the center of the throne was the Lamb of God who takes the scroll and opens it. All of history begins to unfold, and worship is going on around the throne of God, and it extends from there, it flows from there into the whole universe. Everything flows from the worship of God. So far from being a kind of extracurricular activity, an optional extra, no, this is our greatest grace. This is our highest priority. We come together. We gather together with all of God's people. And you say, well, yeah, that's great. That's wonderful being in heaven, you know, to dwell above with, you know, with the saints above. Well, that will sure be glory, but to gather below with the ones I know, that's a different story. Um, I get it, you might, you might feel a little awkward at times gathering together with people that are 
very different from you, different desires, different shapes. But that reminds us, as Peter said, that we are living stones, not living bricks, living stones. We're all shaped differently, have different personalities, different tastes, different nationalities, ethnicities, different backgrounds, different wounds, different desires. But God is taking all of us in our individual and personal uniqueness and uniting us in one body that he calls a spiritual house for a holy priesthood that all together we might offer up worship to God in the holy places of heaven. Now, it is that issue that we want to look at today. How is it? What does it look like for us to gather together and enter heaven's courts and offer worship to God? What are the things that characterize it? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to ask you to read along with me beginning in in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, remember there, by the blood of Christ, we enter the holy places. He's not talking about somewhere in Jerusalem. He's not talking about a a church building. He's saying heaven itself. The same voice that said to John on the Isle of Patmos, come up here, is a summons to worship to every believer every Lord's day to go into the heavenly holy of holies. That's where we're called. He says, by a new and living way that Christ has opened for us through the veil, that is through his flesh, that's a reference to the holy of holies. And he says, um, we're entering into that, we go through Christ and he says, um, we have a great high priest over the house of God, so let us draw near. Would you say that with me? Let us draw near. It's not an individual personal act alone. It certainly involves us personally, but it's a congregational act. All of us, let's go together into the courts of the Lord. How? With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Remember, we talked about this. When a person was was made a priest, they were sprinkled with oil and blood and water. And what, what the writer of Hebrews here is saying is that every single believer has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, you've been baptized, now you're part of this royal priesthood. You are are able through Christ to enter and stand before God's throne. And he says, let's do that with full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our, our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now, I was born on Sunday morning at about 8 o'clock, just in time for the early service. I've been in church my whole life. It's a habit. If I'm, on, if, if I'm somewhere on a Sunday and I'm not in church, I go stand behind furniture just to feel more secure. I don't know what to do with myself. And so here's the truth. Gathered worship with God's people is a habit. It's a habit of the heart. It's a rhythm of life that recognizes that worship is not something which I simply do on my own. It certainly is something that's personal. It's something you may do on your own. It's something you may do with your family. But when the whole church gathers, there's a, listen to this, a particular anointing a particular grace that belongs to the throne room of grace that we experience when we come together. The great preacher, 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones of London, he, great Welsh preacher, he was for several years opposed to his sermons being recorded. Because he said, how can anybody just take, and I know this is old school, and that's about like a rotary phone. He said, how can anybody take a cassette tape, some of you will remember what those are, and, and listen to that and get anything out of the message like what they should get out of the message. And what he's noting is that there is a all together with all the saints revelation and impartation that happens when we're in the the same place all gathered together before the throne of grace. Now, thankfully, he, he gave in and we were able to listen to his sermons for a long time. But a lot of people take the notion today, I don't need the church, I don't need other believers. I, I just have my personal time with the Lord in the car on I-95. Because if you're on I-95, you are praying, aren't you? You are praying because you're, go, you're on your way and people are going 95. That's why it's called I-95. And they're just flying around you. And, and, and you go, well, I got some worship music on. I got, got a little, I got some songs I like. And then I listen to a podcast. I got Alistair Begg or Tim Keller or some other wonderful preacher. And by the time you get to work, you go, oh, that was a great worship time. Well, I'm not saying it wouldn't be a great worship time and certainly a serious prayer time. But please, please. Don't close your eyes. Okay, thanks. Um, uh, but as you're, as you're going there, that's not what is in view here in this text. It's all of us together going up into the throne room of heaven, and that is our habit. And it says encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. So sometimes people are like, well, you know, I don't know when the coming of Christ is, but I, I believe it might be soon. But if you believe that the day is soon, then how much more should we be encouraging one another? We can't encourage one another simply from our cars or separated from one another. So we gather together and we encourage each other in the Lord. That's part of what occurs in the gathered worship of God's people. So what are the characteristics of God's people gathering together? Let me give you a few this morning, and uh, then we'll go to the Lord's table. Here's the first one. The first one is it's spiritual. It's spiritual. In John chapter four, verses 20 through 24, Jesus was having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And you probably know that the Samaritans and the Jews ethnically did not get along with each other. They were in deep, deep generational conflict. And they had a separate temple from Jerusalem, the Samaritans did, where they said you had to worship. And so she's having this conversation with Jesus and this issue comes up. And she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain and yet you say it's in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. We, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father doesn't seek worship, the Father seeks worshipers. 
He doesn't need worship. Worship is a gift he gives us. So he's seeking the lost and bringing them into his family and he's transforming people that were slaves into priests and prophets and kings, bringing us into his presence, giving us the feast of his presence at his table. He seeks us. But the characteristic of worship is that it's not tied to a particular building. It is worship which is first in spirit and secondly, it's in truth. This means that what we experience in gathered worship is what we can call the geography of heaven. In Hebrews chapter 10 here it says we have access to these holy places. Now again, it's very important for us to recognize that what he's talking about there is heaven itself. In Hebrews uh, chapter nine, for instance, the, Lord, the, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us this, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Moses' tabernacle, Solomon's temple, all these cons- buildings constructed are, listen to this, copies of heaven. So that's critical for us to get because what God was doing in giving the tabernacle and the temple was bringing heaven to earth, but it was temporary. Then he sent his son, Christ came, died on the cross, turned us all into priests so that now he could bring all of us who are on earth to heaven. That's the amazing thing. And when you get there, you suddenly go, oh, I recognize the layout of this place. I'm now a person that's right before the mercy seat, the throne of grace. I'm here with my great high priest, Christ Jesus, and he is mediating and making my worship perfect before God, and I am in his presence, and that means that I am in the spirit. So in the spirit is not a set of feelings that you have, it is a place where you come to in Christ. You come before the throne of grace, you are in the spirit. And there in the spirit, you see the scroll unrolled. That's why Jesus says it is worship in spirit and in truth. You see, truth is critical as part of biblical worship. Jesus prayed for his people in John 17 and he said, Father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Now. I know Meghan Markle wants to bring up my truth, and everybody wants to use that phrase now, my truth, as though truth is something which is supple, a kind of clay nose that you can twist any way you want. But truth, by the way, I'm glad it doesn't work that way with hydraulics on the landing gear of airplanes, can I just say. You know, is the plane gonna land safely? Well, I don't know, my truth, That wouldn't be a great comfort. There are certain things that don't work that way and one of those is God's word. God's word is forever settled in heaven. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Christ says it is the truth. And so the word of God is always attached to the worship of God. That's why the scroll is unrolled in that heavenly worship service. When we gather together, we see the word of God open, read to us, expounded, And when you are doing that, you are hearing the Lord speak to you by his word. He speaks by what he has spoken. When Jesus was confronted by some opponents, 
he said to them, have you not read, listen to this brilliant question, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? So God's voice speaking to his people was written. Have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? And then he quotes, Jesus quotes from the book of Exodus with Moses before the, before the burning bush. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the burning bush experience. And he says what was written, he says to his opponents, what was written a couple thousand years ago was not simply a record of what God said to Moses. When it was written down, what God said to Moses became God's word to you forever. Sometimes people say, well, I don't see how the Bible, which was written largely 2,000 or more years ago, can, can in any way speak to us in this early 21st century modern technological society in which we have advanced so far. We have air conditioning, come on. But the scriptures are God's voice speaking to his people across all of time. And so when we worship, we open God's word. Worship is the opening of God's word to hear the voice of God speaking to his people. We worship in spirit and in truth. That's spiritual worship. If it's not the word of God opened, read, and expounded to God's people as they gather together, it's not spiritual worship, no matter how great it may feel. So it has to be in the realm of the spirit, and it has to be in accordance with truth. Here's the second thing. Now, this word is going to mess with you. It's the word liturgical. Now, some of you are going to go, oh, oh, I don't like that word. Maybe like me, you grew up in a very liturgical church. I grew up Lutheran, and so there was a set liturgy, and we went through it. When I was at the zenith of my wisdom, when I was 14, I, I chucked every bit of that and said, I don't want anything more to do with that. That obviously is something which is binding people up, that, that is keeping people from worshiping God, and I made the mistake of confusing the form of the worship with the heart of the worship. I saw people around me that were very clearly, didn't even really mean what they were saying. They really weren't following the Lord. They were just going through the motions and the scriptures are full of examples like that. That's not new. And I thought the problem was the form. And I could quote Timothy, you know, you hold to the form of godliness but deny the power. But you know, those are not mutually exclusive things. Form and power do go together. And actually, you need form with power. If you have electricity coming towards you, it's good if it comes to you in a cable with insulated wire around it and doesn't just come at you. Do you know what you call a river without banks? A flood. And so form and power go together. These are not things which are antithetical to one another. An athlete to develop power for the performance of his or her sport is working on form. They have to get the form right so the power can be released. You're working on those moves so you can do it. You can get around those people. That form releases the power. Form and power go together. That's very important for us because sometimes, because of our past experiences, we can negate form in the name of freedom. No, 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 I just want to be free. 
but let me just show you something. What if, what if Eric, who leads worship, stood up here on Sunday morning and he said, hey, Spanish River, it's great to be together. Let's all sing. Everybody sing whatever you want. Just sing whatever you want. Anything, anything. I mean, this section over here has got Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band going over here. Somebody back there has got Elevation going on. Somebody over here has got Hillsong. Somebody, oh, let's pray. Somebody over here has, <laughs> I didn't mean that. It just erased that. Okay, so, so there's all kinds of, all kinds of, you got, is it, what is that? Is that, what's that? That's a cacophony. That's disordered. And I say liturgical is important because in Acts 13, 2, it says that as God's people gathered together, they were worshiping the Lord. There was in the church at Antioch certain leaders, Acts 13, 2, and they were gathered together and ministering or worshiping the Lord. That word for worship there is the word where we get liturgy. It's the same word. It's a biblical term. Romans chapter 12, one and two. I urge you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice which is acceptable to God. Don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. But look at the end of verse one. He says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. It's the same term. Latreia, liturgia, same family of words. And what it means is this. Again, it comes back to all of us together. Again, how many priests in the room today? All of us. All of us are in the priesthood together. Now, a liturgy in the ancient world wasn't a necessarily a religious term. It could be used that way. But in the ancient world, it was used of what everybody brought, what everybody brought. So for instance, if a city wanted to put on some athletic games, no one person could afford the cost of putting on the games. And perhaps the city government didn't have the resources to put on the games. But if everybody kicked in some, then the games could go on. And what everybody put in, listen, what everybody put in was called their liturgy. That's the liturgy. It's when everybody is participating. Now, a, a person said to me a few years ago, you are positively medieval, which I took to be a compliment. But <laughs> I, I kind of dig the Middle Ages and that's fine. I think they get a, a, a bad name. But one of, the, one of the things that was going on that's troubling is this. There was super highly skilled choirs that did all the music, and then an educated priesthood doing the, now I'm talking about the Western church now, doing the entire service in Latin, which members of the congregation did not understand. And so of course, if you got these great singers and they're just performing and then you got a priest who's doing everything just in Latin and you don't even know what's going on, how does that, how does that work in terms of your participation? What happens? Just, that's it, you're just, you just become a spectator. That's it, you're just a spectator. And that's what happened. And that's why Luther and Calvin and all of these folks were intent on creating call and responses so that when the word is read, when we take communion together, when we pray together, we're saying things together. And you go, yeah, but saying stuff together sounds weird, man. It just sounds weird. Really, I don't think so. I think we do say things together. Let's come back to that singing thing again. You know, Eric's not gonna stand up here and go, everybody sing, woo, go. 
No, let's put up the first stanza of the first hymn we sang this morning. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That's some great theology and it's some great hymnody and you sang it and we sang all the same words together. But now, put up the next slide and look at these words. It's a prayer that begins, Almighty God. And I want you to read it with me. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord, amen. Now, what's the only difference between the first stanza of holy, holy, holy in the prayer? The only difference is the first thing has musical notes attached to it. Nobody gets to the end of singing that and go, I feel so bound up. I don't feel any freedom at all. Now, I've watched some of you when you were all singing together, ain't no grave gonna hold me down. There were a couple of folks who were like halfway up. They were rapture practice. I mean, some elevation going on there, all right? And you weren't feeling like, I feel so bound up because we're all singing the same words at the same time. No, that's good order. That's liturgy. And it's the same thing when we pray together, when we confess our faith together, like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. When we have those elements, we're doing it together. Let me give you a couple other things here very quickly as we close. Here's the next thing, hospitable. Worship together has to be hospitable. In 1 Corinthians 14, look at this. Paul's talking about uh, the church gathered together and what's going on in the worship service. And by the way, what was happening in Corinth is not, I, I just, I'll just take, Corinth, Corinthians is not the letter you'd want to get in the mail. I'll just say that, okay. He says, he's, he's reproving them, he's correcting them. And he says, he's talking about all of them um, um, speaking in tongues all at the same time. And he says, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person, say the other person, the other person, they're not not being built up. I thank in God I speak in tongues more than y'all. Paul was a southerner. (laughs) Nevertheless, In church, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And then down in verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? You You have checked out. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is among you. Now what's the burden of this? The burden of this is very simple. Outsiders and understandability. Outsiders and understandability. Accessibility and understandability. Most of you opened up a Bible or an app and you didn't, you didn't read it this morning in Hebrew or Greek or Latin. You read it in a language you know. You didn't even think that that was a miracle. It's a miracle. The reformers like William Tyndale and Luther and others put 
and insisted on this, that the Bible be in the language of the people. And Tyndale died. He was burned at the stake so that you and I could have the Bible in our language. That's an incredible gift that was given to us. And so it's important that gathered worship is understandable. That way it's accessible to people. It's understandable. If it's not understandable, then the person can't say what? Amen. Because they don't know what you're saying. So it's very important that our worship is understandable. And here's the second thing, that it's accessible. With if, if what we're doing in worship, when unbelievers come into it, makes Jesus difficult to see and understand, then that worship does not please God. If worship that we're doing makes Jesus less visible, it's not pleasing to God. The unbeliever has to be able to enter into worship and go, I see God here. I hear the word of God here. I hear Christ here. So you may be, you may be having helicopter worship, man. You may be out there, but if you whack an unbeliever in the head and he says, I'm not coming back, then we've not succeeded. Don't judge other people by their outside physical appearance in worship. Not by how high their hands are or, how, or whether or not they're, they're, they appear to be passionate or not. Real worship involves the mind and the heart and the body. But however it is you're worshiping before God in that way, is if it's marked by truth and the spirit, you're there. And that leads to this last thing. It's sacramental and it's scriptural. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this. He says, when you, he says, when I, in these following instructions, I don't commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, you guys are having church, but you, you leave worse than when you got there. In the first place, you come together and there are, there are divisions. And then look down at verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Will I commend you in this? No, I won't. In other words, the worship of God, the church, when it gathers, it eats and drinks together. And you go, well, how can that be really spiritual? Well, let's ask Adam and Eve. When they ate, when they ate, what was wrong? What kind of spiritual impact did that have? On them and on the whole world. Death entered in. Do you remember what it says about their, their high trees? And it says, they took and ate. Jesus got us all together and he says to us this morning, take and eat. And in Jesus saying to us, take and eat, there is an undoing of the original fall that was they took and ate. This morning when you take the bread and you take the cup, you are entering into God's presence and feasting in his house. And so friends, I invite you to come to the Lord's table. All of you have put your trust in Christ. Paul goes on to say in this text, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. 
that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you and for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you, and this do in remembrance of me. And Paul says there in that chapter, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so friends, this morning, you can take that little cup, and I wish we just had one big common cup, because that would be the better symbol than just your personal cup. But, a whole, but if I passed around a common cup, you, all of you would say, not today, pastor, not today. But you can take that little cup, but if you peel off the top part, you'll find a, a small wafer and then juice underneath there. And we're going to eat and drink together today, and it's spiritual, and it's in God's presence. So I want you to pray with me this morning. Let's do that. Lord, we set aside now this bread and this wine from common use unto sacred purpose. So work in us by your spirit. So work in us by your spirit that we might have true communion in the body and blood of Christ. Amen. So if you're a believer in Christ, then we're gonna eat and drink together. If you haven't yet put your trust in Christ, then don't eat and drink, but rather take this moment to ponder the fact that Christ died for you, rose for you, will come again, and to ask him to make himself real in your life. And so believers in Christ, you who've put your trust in Jesus, take and eat the body of Christ, which is given for you. And then, together, brothers and sisters, this is the blood of Christ, which has been shed for you. Take and drink with thankful hearts. Amen. Thanks be to the Lord for his indescribable gift. These are the Lord's works and marvelous in our eyes. Would you stand with me? And let's lift up the Lord who loves us. Lord Jesus, exalted Savior, Lion of the tribe of Judah, Lamb at the center of the throne. With all the saints of heaven, we magnify your name. With all who've gone before us and with all the believers around the world today, those in persecution and those in joy, those in pain and those in sorrow and those in joy, we lift holy hands, hands made holy by your blood, and we magnify your name. Receive our worship, Lord, here in your, in your heavenly, heavenly house. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's lift our hearts in song to the Lord. Amen. 